I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to The Napoleonicist. This podcast is a little bit later than advertised, sorry about that, partly because there were some creases that I needed to try and iron out with it, and partly because I've been working on a huge project for the Waterloo anniversary next month, Waterloo Remembered, which I'll tell you about at the end of this episode. So far in these podcasts, you've heard from me an opinion piece, episodes based on my own research, but you'll remember that right at the start of this, I promised that this podcast would cater to all levels of knowledge. This one, therefore, covers some of the more fundamental points about the origins of the period by focusing on the early phase of the French Revolution and its origins. That doesn't necessarily mean that the French Revolution experts should switch off now, as I'm still going to work some discussion points into the podcast as we go. So, for today's focus, where did it all go wrong? The escalation of the French Revolution. Almost all revolutions have a spark. The spark for the French Revolution was actually another revolution. The revolt of the American colonies against British rule in the 1770s planted the seeds of revolution in France. France was very keen to assist the fledgling nation in asserting its independence, seeing it as the perfect opportunity to strike at the heart of Britain's empire. Although Britain was left reeling by the departure of the 13 American colonies, the effects were, ironically, felt perhaps more keenly in France, where the ideals of liberty were well received amongst intellectual thinkers of the Enlightenment. Britain had had its experiment with republicanism in the 1650s following the execution of Charles I in January 1649, and the experience of the protectorate, essentially under the military dictatorship of Oliver Cromwell, had left little appetite for radical reform. France was a different story. Yet if the American War of Independence was the spark, there still had to be powder for the spark to ignite the explosion that was the French Revolution. That powder was essentially the more immediate causes of the French Revolution, 
social inequality and the French king's financial difficulties. Before 1789, France was governed by an absolute monarch. The king was an autocratic ruler. That meant that he shared power with no one, and whilst he did have ministers to advise him, he could dismiss those ministers whenever he wished, and he often did not listen to their advice. His will could not be questioned and had to be obeyed. This style of government is sometimes referred to as the Ancien Régime, and was typical of many European nations at the time. However, King Louis XVI was aware of the need to be less autocratic. There was a huge lack of consistency in the laws across different regions of France, which made governing consistently difficult. The king also recognised the need for his subjects to consent to some of his decisions in order to receive their cooperation. This was particularly true in the case of taxes, where a lack of consistency and the need for consent were major issues. Yet Louis was also a weak individual, the laughing stock of his courtiers, and that in itself had a role to play in the escalation of the revolution. Society in France at the time was split into different estates or groups. Unlike feudal society, where the king was at the top of society with all the power, the nobles below him and the peasants at the bottom, the estate system was more subtle, more complex than that. There were three main estates, the nobles, the clergy, and the professional or business class. The peasants and the city workers were not included in the system. We can't actually talk about a working class in society at this time because the concept didn't emerge until the middle of the 19th century. Despite making up over 90% of the population though, neither the peasants or the poor city workers had the right to vote. However, there were divisions within each of those estates that I mentioned. Not all the nobles were actually rich. In fact, some of them were very poor and did not dare to work because doing so would risk diminishing their status. For these families, the prospect of new taxes by the king were very unwelcome, and they were the most keen to avoid even the existing taxes. Some were even prepared to move to certain parts of the country where tax laws were laxer. Nonetheless, this part of society generally had the most influence with the king, and therefore had the most power. There was also a rich-poor divide amongst the clergy. The bishops and leading church figures were very wealthy. The church did not pay tax, but could collect what was in effect its own tax, a tithe, creaming off a tenth of the wealth of the land to help fund the church. The average priest, however, was not wealthy, living in conditions that were only slightly better than the peasants. Whilst the clergy were respected by a significant part of French society, it was only the bishops that had the real power and influence. The professional estate was essentially made up of businessmen. This was a growing class, which was essentially made up of merchants and wealthier factory owners. Their closer interaction with the poorer class meant that they were more aware than any other estate of the need for reform. This was all the more important as the number of city workers in Paris is estimated to be around 300,000 people in 1789, or around half the city's population. The problems for the lowest classes in French society were, fairly obviously, related to wealth. Prices had risen by 65% in France over the 50 years before the revolution, yet wages had only risen by 22%. Their money therefore bought less, an issue which was made even worse by the poor harvest of 1788, which saw prices soar even higher. It is therefore clear that the country had enormous social problems, which needed urgent and radical solutions. 
However, if it had not been for the financial issues that the country faced, the French Revolution would almost certainly never have happened, or at least certainly not in the form that it did. By the 1780s, France was in financial crisis. The country's debts were huge. The king had borrowed a vast amount of money to fight the Seven Years' War of 1756 to 63, and to both fund the USA in the American War of Independence of 1775 to 83, and also send troops in support. When a budget was drawn up in 1788, it emerged that there was a 20% shortfall between the country's income and how much it was spending. 48% of the country's money was being spent on trying to manage the debts. As the extent of the country's financial troubles became clear, Louis XVI was forced to call an assembly of, the, of France's Notables, that's 144 aristocrats and bishops, who met in February 1787. There hadn't been a meeting of the Notables for over 150 years. As they became aware of how serious the situation was, however, the Notables tried to exploit this demanding that a number of reforms be made before they'd even consider granting the king the taxes that he needed. Although Louis agreed in principle to a number of reforms, they still did not agree to the new tax, and therefore the king disbanded them on the 25th of May 1787. But with no solution to his financial problems, Louis was forced to call the Estates General, which would go on to demand far more radical reforms. As a result, the French Revolution was actually begun by the rich and the refusal to help the king, rather than being pushed from below by the poor. However, the king still needed to raise taxes and he therefore called the Estates General, representatives of the three estates within French society. When they met on the 5th of May 1789, there was a conflict between the nobles and the third estate, as the third estate demanded rights for that 95% of the population who could not vote. By the 17th of June, the third estate, unable to agree with the nobles, broke away from the estates general and began calling themselves a national assembly. They were rapidly joined by the second estate, that is the clergy. The king realised that he risked losing control and he therefore tried to shut down the estates general on the 20th of June. However, the National Assembly quite simply refused to be dismissed. They met at an indoor tennis court where they swore what is known as the Tennis Court Oath, vowing not to disband until they had given France a constitution, a set of laws which limits the power of the government. They immediately voted to end absolute monarchy and set up a constitutional monarchy instead. The National Assembly, with its clear sense of purpose, was joined by the remaining members of the other estates and began working towards that new goal. However, it became nervous about Louis' intentions as 20,000 French soldiers gathered around Paris. On the 14th of July 1789, groups of hungry protesters who, nervous about the gathering forces, had spent two days ransacking parts of the city for weapons and flour, stormed the Bastille prison. There should never have been bloodshed at the Bastille. The prison's governor had promised not to disturb the protesters, but then panicked uh, when an internal drawbridge within the uh, prison was lowered. And in the process, he ordered, in the process of his panic, he ordered the prison guards to open fire on the crowd. He was ultimately decapitated for his troubles when protesters forced their way into the prison. Yet the storming of the Bastille was important 
as the prison itself was an imposing symbol of the king's power. It dominated eastern Paris and its destruction was therefore symbolic. The parallels between the National Assembly's efforts to dismantle royal power and the demolition of the Bastille did not go unnoticed. The 14th of July 1789 is often quoted as the date when the French Revolution took place, yet in reality the storming of the Bastille was not the start of the French Revolution. Those who took part in the storming had simply been given fresh hope by the events that had taken place over the previous months. If Bastille Day represented anything, I would argue it was quite simply the end of the beginning of the revolution. Paris was now in the hands of the mob. Louis considered using the army to crush the revolt, but he was advised that actually the troops might not obey. Rather than risk losing control of his army, Louis backed down and the 20,000 troops around, around Paris were sent back to their bases. The National Assembly made a series of reforms over the following weeks. Free justice and equality of taxation were introduced, and the Assembly refused to recognise Catholicism as the state religion. In one incredible night on the 4th of July, nobles in the Assembly all renounced their privileges, whilst the clergy relinquished the tithe, although many probably did so because they knew that it was coming anyway and it was better to jump rather than be pushed. By October, the citizens of Paris had become nervous about a new build-up of troops around the city. Fearful that King Louis was planning to remove the National Assembly, a mob, mainly made up of women, marched to the King's Palace at Versailles. Once there, they demanded that the King return to the city with them. He had little choice, and was taken back to Paris, effectively a prisoner in a humiliating procession. The National Assembly's reforms continued, with the nobility being abolished completely in June 1790. However, they struggled to agree on the final form of the constitutional monarchy. The dispute on whether the king should have the power to override the constitution under circumstances was particularly hard to solve. On the 20th of June 1791, however, Louis began to force the issue, fleeing Paris and leaving behind a letter criticising the actions of the National Assembly. Although he was recaptured, the flight seems to be pretty poorly planned. This event led many to question whether France would actually be better off with no king, rather than one who was clearly not willing to accept the revolution. The National Assembly hurriedly completed their preparations for a constitutional monarchy, which Louis agreed to on the 14th of September. Louis's escape attempt also drew the attention of other countries in Europe, who had been watching the events of the French Revolution with growing apprehension. They were concerned that the ideas of the revolution might spread to their own countries. The sign that the king was the captive of his own people gave them a pretext that they could exploit to threaten to invade. The king's minister, Maximilien Robespierre, believed that the army would lose the war and was therefore actually anxious to avoid it in order to preserve the new constitution. Louis happened to agree with Robespierre's judgment, but that was precisely why he wanted a war to break out in the first place. In the end, the threats from foreign nations created a war fever in France, and Louis signed a declaration of war against Austria on the 20th of April 1792, hoping that this would topple the new regime and allow him to reassert himself as the autocratic monarch. The war forced the French people to choose a side, those who supported the revolution and those who didn't. Anyone who did not support the revolution was considered counter-revolutionary and deemed to be a traitor. The issue for Louis was that he was closely connected with the enemy. His wife, Marie Antoinette, 
was the sister of the Emperor of Austria, whom France was fighting. Louis's situation was actually made worse when he tried to exercise a veto on measures connected to the army's organisation. A threat by a Prussian general that Paris would be destroyed if the king was harmed began to then identify Louis with the enemy, making him a traitor in the eyes of the revolutionaries. The monarchy was ultimately abolished on the 10th of August 1792, after the Palace of Tullieres was stormed by a Paris mob. Louis was then tried in December as a traitor of the French people, found guilty of treason and executed on the 21st of January 1793 using the guillotine. The First French Republic had been born. At the start of the podcast, I posed a slightly provocative question. Where did it all go wrong? I should probably be clear, I'm not actually trying to suggest that the Ancien Régime in France was a great institution and that we should all lament its passing. Far from it. My point is more that the French Revolution seems to be one of history's prime examples of how a situation could escalate, be hijacked by other factions and get totally out of hand. For all that popular history emphasises the mass involvement of the storming of the Bastille, radical reform was never on the agenda when the tennis court oath was sworn. The concept of a constitutional monarchy was radical enough in itself for many at the time. Executing the king and declaring France to be a republic was a result of that escalating situation. I therefore suggest that the French Revolution is essentially an upper-class revolt that got drastically out of hand. Had the Notable been willing to compromise with the king, there would have been no National Assembly, no tennis court oath, and realistically, the nobility were never going to push such a radical agenda. There's also a significant degree of irony in the fact that the financial crisis that kick-started the events which led to the revolution and destabilised the country were created by the French themselves, trying to destabilise Britain by supporting the fledgling USA. But ultimately, the reason why the revolution is so complex to understand is that there was no blueprint. There wasn't really a real plan. There was This was something that became even more clear as the 1790s developed. As Charles Brunig puts it, it's easier to name the successive governments um, in the crowded decade that was the 1790s than to discern a general trend and classify the regimes. France lurched from absolutist monarchy to constitutional monarchy to a, re a republic in the space of three years. The fact that a constitution was written in 1791 for a limited monarchy shows the intention was never to completely rewrite the social rulebook. Some might say, ah yes, but think about the abolition of feudal privileges on the 4th of August and the abolition of slavery in 1793. Surely that shows a radical agenda. Yet both of these incidents were not entirely selfless acts. The first estate and the clergy's abolition of the tithe were both motivated by fear, generated by exaggerated reports of anti-aristocracy uprisings across the countryside. And slavery's abolition was in part driven by events. Initial proposals were for the abolition of the slave trade, the granting of civil liberties to ethnic minorities by the Assembly in May 1781 did not stave off a slave revolt in Saint-Domingue, where Toussaint Louverture emerged as the leader of the liberation movement. It was only in October 1793, when the French government wanted to attract Africans to fight for France, that slavery was abolished in Saint-Domingue, with other colonies following earlier in the next year. So liberty and equality was never at the heart of the agenda. It wasn't the raison d'etre in itself. 
and it's that lack of a linear development that can make the revolution so perplexing. Amongst historians, there are different schools of thought on the lasting significance of the French Revolution. Marxist historians, who, as the name suggests, look for evidence of Karl Marx's political manifesto Das Kapital, which gave rise to the communist movement, have queried whether the French Revolution was a precursor to the Russian Revolution. It's a really interesting question, and in all honesty we could spend an hour discussing it, and not necessarily be any closer to an answer. Personally, and I'd be interested in hearing other people's take on this, I'm not convinced that that way of thinking is helpful. For one thing, as I mentioned earlier, we can't really talk about a working class in 1789 in the way that we can in, say, 1889. So the idea of a working class revolution taking place is actually anachronistic. You're trying to apply a concept to a period where it doesn't belong. I'm also inclined to think that if we're going in search of evidence of Marxism in an event before the time of Marxism, we actually run the risk of skewing our judgment and in the process we take something away from the remarkable complexity of the revolution. Equally the fact that the situation as I keep arguing seems to escalate from one concept to another becoming increasingly radical with each shift and with each change in the dominant party within the National Assembly seems to suggest that actually an embryonic version of Marxism was not on the agenda, at least not at the start. A line had to be navigated, in the early phase of the revolution at least, between creating a reforming agenda through a constitutional monarchy and also creating an agenda which was acceptable to the bulk of French society. The mob played its part in the course of events, don't get me wrong, with the Montagnards, the uh, more radical Jacobins, exploiting and even stirring up the ferment in order to exert ever more pressure on the assembly. Ultimately, however, the revolution was dictated by the dominant factions within the assembly, as the consensus that the tennis court oath generated evaporated with alarming rapidity. Was the radicalisation of the revolution inevitable, as some have argued? Not necessarily. A wiser ruler than Louis XVI might have been able to stabilise the situation sooner, but to explore that is to dwell in counterfactuals, which is rarely productive. As you know by now, you can contact me on Twitter at ZWhiteHistory. As ever, let me know your thoughts in the forum at www.thenapoleonicwars.net. This episode deliberately raises more questions than it answers, and has more of my opinions than normal in a bid to let you have your say more freely. For those of you who enjoyed the last podcast on the Bones of Burgos project, you can now sign up to a mailing list to stay up to date with progress on that initiative on my website. That's it for this month, but as I mentioned at the start, next month is going to be huge. June 2020 will witness the 205th anniversary of the Battle of Waterloo. For the first time in our history, we can't come together to commemorate that event. Yet that doesn't mean that the sacrifice and the loss of life is any less worth remembering. I've therefore decided that the Napoleon Assist will become the hub of commemorations of the battle. From the 5th of June to the 18th, I will be releasing a new podcast episode every single day. I'll be bringing you interviews with specialists from around the world, historians, reenactors, museum curators, battlefield guides, even an author, to look at a wide range of questions on how Waterloo is remembered, the reality of what happened in the battle, and bring you the cutting-edge thinking on its legacy. Then, on the four days of the campaign, the 15th, 16th, 17th and 18th of June, I will be releasing 41 readings of eyewitness accounts from the battle, 
That's one for every five years since Waterloo. Those readings have been recorded by people around the world and from all walks of life. Some experts, others enthusiasts, and some even descendants of those who fought in the campaign. They will cover all perspectives, British, French, Prussian, Dutch, men, women, civilians, soldiers and politicians. It is one of, if not the biggest oral history projects ever attempted for the Napoleonic era. You can catch every second of it here on the Napoleon Assist. But that's not all. Through the days of the campaign, the 15th to the 18th of June, I will be tweeting in real time details about what was happening during the campaign 205 years ago. Most importantly though, I'm aiming to live stream a memorial service on the morning of the 18th to allow everyone to come together from across the globe to pay their respects. You can keep up to date with all the details of this on my Twitter account at ZWhiteHistory and by keeping an eye out for the hashtag Waterloo Remembered. I'll be posting details on the website as well close to the time as everything gets finalised. Please do get involved in the event. Pass the word on to friends who might be interested. Share your experiences of visits to the battlefield or accounts of the battle which moved you. Do you have an ancestor who fought in the campaign? What does Waterloo mean to you? Post your thoughts either in the forum or on social media and remember to use the hashtag Waterloo Remembered so that everyone can get involved in the discussion. Most importantly though, be sure to have a listen to, listen to the podcasts as they go live. I will see you in June for that fantastic, fun-filled, epic saga. But until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care, my friends. Stay well. Stay safe. Look after your loved ones. Stay kind. And as always, thanks for listening. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.